0: You join me as we pray again. We've come already so often to you, Father, in song and in word. We just now ask very specifically that you will speak to us through the written word. We would take every thought captive and make it obedient to you. We pray that you will give your guardian angels charge over this entire sanctuary. We pray that you will neutralize every distracting work of the enemy, every accusing voice of the enemy. We pray, Father, that neither the things that have passed nor the things that are ahead of us today will be allowed to interfere in any way, Father. Just give us powers to focus, to concentrate. We pray that you will bless this gathering with a holy hush that the only voice will be yours. You know you have to do that miracle because frail, tainted human lips speak these words and equally frail, tainted ears hear these words. You have to transcend and get past both of them to accomplish your work in our midst and in our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. Last week as we began our summer study of the book of Psalms, Pastor Stevens walked you through a small psalm of just six verses, but which had significant uh, pertinence for those times in our life where we are crying out with that question, how long, O God? He encouraged us to to use our emotions in our relationship with God, to pour out our hearts to Him, to plead with Him, to look upon us and to act on our behalf. And then in His timing and in His way, we would break through to, to that praise and affirmation of trust in Him as well. Today I want to approach our study of Psalms from a completely different perspective. I want to engage our minds today. Rather than pour out our hearts to God, we're going to open our minds so He can pour His thoughts into our minds. And the reason for that is a single word, perspective. Remember, Stevens reminded us last week that the, the, the key, one of the keys to that transition from that anguished prayer to the affirmation of praise was a change in perspective that comes from God's word. And I've discovered both in my own life and in attempting to share and pro, pro, um, encourage other people in this life of prayer that more than exhortations to pray more than guidance on how to pray perspective more than anything else encourages us to continue in this journey of prayer and, this, and I'm not going to look at one single psalm either we're going, to look at what, we're going to look at the first five psalms as a package and I trust that together they will provide us some important perspective on prayer So, if you have your Bibles, open them with me to Psalm 1. If not, just follow me here on the overhead. And if you do, you will find that under the heading Psalms, before you even get to the first Psalm, is the title, Book 1. These 150 Psalms are divided into five different books. Now, the interesting thing about this division is that they are not uniform. You don't have 30 Psalms in each division. Nor are they gathered around any particular topic, like all of the first book doesn't deal with one topic, and the second book deals with another. There is no theological progression, except the first five and the last five, which we'll talk about today. So why did the editors who put this book together, these Psalms in their final form that we have them, why did they divide it this way? Well, it's, it's, it's compelling, because for the Hebrew, the biblical mind, there is one other mention of five that will immediately come to mind and that is the Pentateuch. That's why it's even called the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible. Genesis to Deuteronomy. For in them, God speaks. And so when they arrange the book of prayers into a group of five books, it's hard to escape the intention That they intended by the very arrangement to teach us that prayer is our response to what God has spoken to us. That in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, God speaks to us and we speak back to Him. Prayer, as I've said to you before, for this and many other reasons, is not so much initiating speech as much as responsive or answering speech. This is further emphasized by the focus on the first psalm. As many of us know, Psalm 1 talks about the blessedness of the man who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates day and night in the law of God. Now, why in an introduction to a collection of prayers is the focus being put on God's word? Again, the connection is inescapable. It is because it is the word of God that first of all paints a picture of who this God is to whom we are praying so that our prayers may be prayers that are rooted in the nature of God. But even more important I think it is to reinforce what the arrangement itself reinforces that prayer is our response to God's word. So we meditate first on the word of God to hear him speak to us so we can speak back to him. Like all speech, divine speech also initiates and requires a response. The other interesting thing about the arrangement into these five books is that even though they are intended to correspond to the the first five books of the Bible, there is no rigorous one-to-one correspondence. In other words, the first book of the Psalms doesn't correspond to Genesis, the second book corresponds, that doesn't happen either. What that says to us is that while prayer is intended to be responding to God, it is not some kind of rote, formulaic, mechanical, structured approach that every single Christian has to follow. The best illustration for this is in my own home. Sham and I both read through the same portions of the Bible every year. Uh, and for both of us, it has become initiating speech that we respond to, and often at the end of the day, we'll talk about the passages of Scripture that we read. And I I'm, I'm never cease to be amazed, I shouldn't be, but I never cease to be amazed at how it's almost always different portions of what we read that spoke to each one of us. And sometimes when even the same passage of Scripture has spoken to us, how we prayed in response to that is completely different. <laughs> Which again reinforces for us the fact that while the basic principle applies to everybody, that prayer is responsive speech, there's lots of room for flexibility and individual expression within that as well. All of that we find before we've even looked at one psalm. By the way, one of the things that this does is allows our prayers to be natural. Instead of talking at God, we actually converse with God. We know that from our own human relationship. I mean, you've all had experiences where you've come back from some kind of a social setting or whatever and you've remarked to your spouse or to your friend or whatever. Boy, so-and-so talked a lot, didn't they? I couldn't get a word in edgewise. And, And what happens in those situations is that you don't come away with any deeper knowledge of the person. You don't really have the kind of interaction that sticks with you or that transforms you in some way. You feel talked at. conversations that are two-way, that allow room for interchange and response and exchange of ideas where one person's words trigger the other person's words. They are the kind of conversations that stick with us, that change us, that transform us. Exactly the same is intended to happen. When we allow God to speak to us and we speak back to Him, we don't feel talked at by God. We don't talk at Him. There is an interchange, a relational interchange that takes place that actually affects us and transforms us and changes us. The other thing that this does is it expands our vocabulary of prayer. Again, in an actual human conversation, we might say something like this. I might say, well, Shannon, you're saying this to me today, but two weeks ago you said this. How come? It can be an argumentative response or a puzzle response. Or I might say to her, hey, I now understand what you said two weeks ago. What you said today really helps. I now grow in my understanding and my response is quite different. Exactly the same thing happens when we learn to pray in response to what God has shown to us in His Word. We might start off with Psalm 1 and we are conversing with Him, and the Holy Spirit suddenly takes us to something else that God spoke in Isaiah or in Genesis or Romans, and the conversations become much richer because of that. This kind of praying never gets boring. Now, I didn't say it doesn't get difficult. Because again, like in our normal conversations, superficial, easy conversations are seldom transforming in their effect in our lives. They are actually quite tiring. But the conversations that truly affect us are conversations that take a lot of effort often. They take an effort in listening. They take an effort in articulation. We make mistakes. We end up having conflicts. We have to go back and pick up the pieces once again. But it is those conversations out of which real change and transformation takes place. Exactly the same thing is true in our relationship with God. On the way back after the first service, uh, one mother came to me and she said, boy, I was screaming at God this morning because of a particular situation where there was no response. Huh? Well, Stevens encouraged her to do that last week. <laughs> but she went away blessed because she heard from God. Now, this is a skill that is to be learned like any other skill. We learn, we become good conversationalists by talking. By actually putting the effort to talk. You will become a good conversationalist with God as you actually begin to do this kind of thing. And so for those of you who have struggled all your life with prayer, and prayer has never been this this real uh, meaningful two-way conversation with God, you could do worse than just simply open the Bible to the Psalms Read the first psalm out loud, slowly. Then go to Psalm 2 the next day. And then Psalm 3 the next day. And then by the time you get to June, start again. And you'll finish the whole year twice through with the psalms. If you don't know how else to pray, that's a great... In fact, I think that's how you're supposed to learn to pray. Only do it slowly, so that as you read and voice the words, other thoughts will have room to rise up within you. And when they do, they just become fuel for prayer for God. Anything is legitimate so long as it's actual response to what God is saying to us. And if you need a little bit more help, many of you over the years have picked up this book that I wrote about 10 years ago called The Conquest of Inner Space. It's all about learning to pray through the Psalms. These are much more guided and so if you want to do that, either pick it off from your bookshelf and read it again or pick one copy up if you haven't had it. So there's our first perspective. Prayer is conversation with God that He initiates and that we respond to. Now let's stick with psalm 1 for a minute it begins by saying blessed the very first word in the psalms is blessed and psalm 2 which actually together with psalm 1 functions as an introduction to the whole psalms psalm 2 ends with the word blessed verse 12 of psalm 2 says blessed are all who take refuge in him so the two psalms that are put together as an introduction to the whole psalms begin and end with the word blessed and so we need to understand what this blessedness is and how it functions And most of us intuitively, our our initial response to defining or understanding blessedness is usually material prosperity. You know, we have a good home, our families are doing well, we've got health, things are moving along. Oh, I'm a blessed man. Yes, you are. But really that's, that's too narrow an understanding and in the biblical concept, blessedness goes way beyond that. It's hard to define in a single word, but let me just try and give you a sentence. The blessed man or woman in the Bible seems to be that man or that woman who is truly to be envied, truly to be emulated, because because of the kind of people they are, the direction in which their lives are going, and what that says to us about the place of God in their lives. And we have a beautiful image in Psalm 1 to paint that for us. He says, This blessed man or woman is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. Look at each other. First of all, Tree planted by streams of water. Roots going down deep so there is nourishment that is independence of circumstances. Seasonal yielding. very appropriate yielding of fruit as the need and the situation demands. Leaf that does not wither. Vitality. And whatever he does prospers. Productivity that does not destroy the individual. Now, would you envy such a man or a woman? I would. Would you envy a man or a woman whose roots go down so deep that independent of circumstances they feel nourished, whose life is marked by a sense of vitality rather than mere existence, who bring forth seasonal fruit, they always say what is appropriate to the situation or most of the time anyway, and whose hard work doesn't destroy them but produces something. That man or woman is truly to be envied. That's the kind of blessedness that he's talking about. So that's the primary meaning of the word blessed. And by putting it right at the beginning, this image and this word, it reinforces to us that prayer is the way in which we enter into a life of true, this is how we become these kind of trees. I came across an unexpected illustration of this. Uh, Mark Buchanan in his book, Things Unseen, tells the story of a prisoner named Jason Richards. And this is a little excerpt from his life. He said, I hadn't been long in my sentence in prison and I was very confused. I was carrying an awful lot of guilt. I was looking for answers. I read a lot. I read Buddhism. I read Islam. I started reading the Bible. And the more I read the scriptures, the more I became aware of God. I didn't believe in God. I was actually an atheist or at least I thought I was. But I came to believe that God existed. And the more I became aware of God, the more I became aware that I was a sinner. And I got more and more desperate. Here was a man who was beginning to do Psalm 1. He was looking into the word of God. Then one night I opened my Bible at the first Psalm. I started reading. And when I got to Psalm 50 and 51, I realized that God would forgive me. I didn't know why Psalm 51 had been written then. But the thing I knew was this. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. I knew then that God would forgive me. I didn't know anything about Jesus or the Bible or the church at that time. I just knew. I read all the rest of the Psalms on my knees and almost from that point, for me, they became Psalms of praise. It was like I was beginning to worship and I didn't even know what worship was. That is a blessed man. He broke through to blessedness in a prison cell on his knees, reading and praying the Psalms. Prayer is an invitation to a life of blessedness. But not just in the private realm, whether that private realm is in your study, meditating on the word of God, or in a cell. You see, the dominant mood of Psalm 1 is one of quietness. He's a man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't walk in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. But his it's a picture of a man who's away from everything, huddled up in his little study by himself, meditating on God's word. It's all very quiet and private. That's where it begins. Psalm two, by contrast, is a noisy public world. Look at the opening words of Psalm two. Why do the nations, ra- ra- nations now? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And you know the Hebrew word translated plotting is exactly the same word as meditating in Psalm one. They're both doing the same thing. They're both meditating on God's word. Only in this case, this noisy public world is meditating on God's word to rebel against that word very different mood from Psalm 1 and what are the people of God supposed to do look at verse 10 it says therefore you kings be wise be warned you rulers of the earth serve the Lord with fear kiss the son lest he be angry they are supposed to preach they're supposed to proclaim this God. And the thing that sustains them is not meditating on a tree, but meditating on Messiah. Because right in the middle, verse 6 says, I have installed my king in Zion, my holy hill. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Their meditation on Messiah is now gives them power in the public realm. So you see, you put those two things together, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. They are an invitation to a life of blessedness. Not just in the private realm, but also in the public realm. Not just in your home, but in your places of work. Not just in personal life, but in political life. In public life, private life. Quiet life, noisy life. Prayer is an entrance into a life of this kind of blessedness. This responsive speech to God. This meditating on the word of God and this meditating on Jesus, the Messiah, that allows us to respond appropriately in both cases. And therefore we become a people to be truly envied. Now when we move to the third psalm, we find a title for the first time. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 don't have any titles. Psalm 3, the title simply says, A Psalm of David. David, he is mentioned 960 times in the Old Testament and another 56 times in the New Testament. That's actually more than the number of times Jesus is mentioned, which is about 915 times. And when you look at the chapters, Abraham, the patriarch, gets 14 chapters, Joseph gets 14 chapters, Jacob gets 11 chapters, and David gets 66 chapters. Second only to Jesus. We know more about this man, David, than anybody else in the entire Bible. And a lot more. Not only do we know more about David's external life, we know a lot about David's internal life. 73 of the 150 Psalms are linked to David. And you don't know anything about a person's inner life as you do when you know their prayers. And so we know more about this man's public life and this private life than anybody else. Why? By the way, why is that important to you and to me anyway? Uh, For the simple reason that David was not a prophet, he was not a priest, he was not a wise man. Those were the three religious categories in existence at the time of David. Prophets, priests, and wise men. In other words, David was you. He was a layman. He was a king. He was also you because he was a very busy layman. He had a king, He had a nation to govern. He had battles to fight. He had generals, prima donnas that were fighting with one another. He had to deal with all these people. Sometimes he just got so frustrated. He didn't know what to do with Joab and Abishai and Abner and all these people, you know. He was a busy man. He was also a very imperfect man. He committed the sin of adultery and murder and his whole family was messed up. Not one of his sons were walking with God of any kind. They even rebelled against him. So he was a layman. He was a busy layman. He was an ordinary sinful busy layman. And he also knew a lot of trouble in his life. If you'll notice this title, it says the Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. There are 13 such psalms that refer to specific details in the life of David and every single reference is to trouble and trial and difficulty in his life. So you put it all together, what do you get? You get a man who was a layman, who was a busy layman, who was an ordinary sinful layman, who was a troubled layman and yet he relentlessly pursued God from when life was messy, when life was glorious, and where life was in between those two stages. And so we need to add this. That prayer is for busy, ordinary, troubled and harassed people. Those are the four major excuses we make for not walking with God in life of prayer. I'm only ordinary layman. I'm too busy. I have too much trouble in my life. And there's all kinds of things harassing me. Welcome to the world of David. And he was a man who sought after God. So prayer is conversation with God that he initiates and we respond to. It is an entrance to blessedness in the public realm and the private realm. And it is prayer, and prayer is for busy, ordinary, troubled, harassed people, meaning all of us in the real circumstances of life that we find ourselves in. But it is when we get to these next two Psalms 4 and 5 that I get to probably what in addition to the first principle has been the most sustaining force in prayer in my own life. And I want to get to it by asking a question. What would you say if I asked you, when does day begin? Most of us, certainly well-schooled in Western thinking as we are, would probably say, well, when I get up, I won't ask you when that was today, but whenever you got up, your day began. That's when day begins, because that's when I begin to do all the things I have to do that day. That's where Psalm 4 and Psalm 5 come in. They don't have time signatures in their titles, but there are time signatures in the content of the Psalms that tell you what the dominant time frame was. Psalm 4 says, for example, in verse 4, In your anger do not sin. When you are on your bed, search your heart and be silent. Verse 8 says, I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So Psalm 4 was probably a psalm, not exclusively, but probably a psalm meant for the evening, the end of the day. Psalm 5 is unmistakably a morning psalm. For in verse 3 it says, Morning by morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. Morning by morning I lay my request before you and wait in expectation for you. So Psalm 4 is an evening psalm and Psalm 5 is a morning psalm. But here's the question. If you and I were editing that book of the prayers, which one would we have put first? Almost certainly we would have put the morning prayer first and the evening prayer second. Why? Because we get up in the morning, we pray. Morning prayer should be first. We go to bed at night, that's the end of the day. We put evening prayer why does the psalmist put evening prayer before morning prayer? Even that's not accidental. Because they think biblically, not the way you and I think. And biblical thinking, in, turn, in terms of time, goes all the way back to Genesis 1. And in Genesis 1, you remember how God describes each day that he created, after he finished each day? Morning and evening, day one? No? Evening and morning, day one. Evening and morning. Why? We wouldn't have written that. We would have written morning and evening, day one. Biblical days started in the evening and finished in the day. This is reinforced by one other important factor. When were Adam and Eve created? Day 6. And it says God finished. The apex of his work was finished. And man was given an important task. Adam and Eve were given a task to rule and subdue creation. I mean, talk about the massiveness of the task. And so what did they get to do on day 1? Their day 1, which was day 7? Nothing. He said Sabbath. Down 2's. got it's huge work for you to do, but guess what? Before you do anything, you do nothing. Because the biblical rhythm is to move from sleep to wakefulness, from rest to work. Rest is not something we do to recover from a very hard week of work. Rest is what we do to move into a meaningful week of work. And by putting Psalm 4 and Psalm 5 together in that sequence, it is intended to drive home to us one more important principle that prayer is the means by which we learn to cease from our work and enter into God's work. Let me just, because this requires amplification, so you get a sense of it. take sleep for example you know we can break the sabbath most of us do but you really unless you fill yourself with all kinds of stimulants you're not going to avoid falling asleep (laughs) in fact if you don't sleep you will fall asleep and Eugene Peterson said many years ago in a sentence that I've never forgotten sleep is God's method for getting us out of the way so he can do his work without interference from us When we fall asleep, we stop working, so God is at work. Which means when we awake, we awaken into a day where God has been at work while we have been sleeping. Work is not something we have to initiate at the beginning of each day. We enter into work that has already been prepared for us. I think this is what Ephesians means when it says, for we are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ to good work that God has prepared beforehand. It's not just a predestination thing, it's as much as much an everyday thing where we are awakening into a world in which there are works for us to do that have been prepared for us. But this is how Jesus lived. When God became man and lived on earth, He lived in in, in this principle. Look at John 5, 17. My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son, he completely abrogated initiative when it came to work. Now, how did he enter into this? How did he enter into the work of the father? What did it mean for Jesus to abrogate initiative? Mark's gospel tells us that unlike the other gospels, Mark's gospel doesn't begin in some distant past like John does or with or a detailed account of the nativity. Mark's gospel goes right into the Jesus in action. And the very first chapter of Mark describes a very busy day in the life of Jesus. Get up in the morning, preach in the synagogue, deliver a demon in the synagogue, um, then go and heal me- Peter's mother-in-law, and then heal a whole lot of other people that came, and then he went to sleep. Well, the disciples went to sleep with Him and they woke up the next morning. They said, Wow, there are all these people waiting to get healed. We're ready for another day of miracles. Where's Jesus? Couldn't find Him. So they go looking for Jesus and they find Him alone, praying. And the text says, long before daytime, He went to where He was praying. And they probably said, Hey, they're all looking for you. I think that's what they said. Everybody's looking for you. Meaning all these people are waiting to get healed. And He said, uh-uh, I've got to go someplace else and preach today. Why? Because he got marching orders for that morning. He broke through to a sense of where the father... Last night the father was working healing all these people. This morning that's not where the father's at work. He's working in those places where you have to go and preach in the villages. It is by prayer that he entered into this rhythm of the father's work. This is how you and I are intended to live. We move from rest into work, not work that we initiate, but work that the Father has prepared for us to do. And of course, for most of us, the broad outlines of that work have been pretty well delineated. In my case, my calling. In your case, the work that you do. So how do we bring this perspective into that situation? Let me give you a few examples from my own life. because that's the only, only life I know how this works. Uh, And the purpose of my sharing is not that this is the way it has to work in your life, but understand the principle and put it into practice. The one day in, in the week in which I have no trouble living like this is on Sundays. You know why? Because Sundays I have to preach, and I'm under absolutely no delusion as to the power of my own words. I know there is nothing that I can say that has any power to sway you, to move you, to change your hearts, to create desires. What I attempt to do through preaching is impossible for human beings to do. And so I have, to, I have to count upon the work that God has already been doing in your life. To even get you here is God's work. <laughs> to get me here is God's work. And so I have to move from rest to work. And it's easy for me to do that on Sundays because I'm desperate. I dare not come into this pulpit thinking that my work will accomplish anything. I have to move into the Father's work. But the other days of the week are harder for me. Because of the sheer pressure of the amount of things that have to get done. This past Wednesday was one of those unusual. days. And some days I feel it more than others. I've been away at assembly. I came back Tuesday. It was a whole long day of administration. Getting caught up on emails, telephone conversations, staff meetings. All kinds of things like that. And so Wednesday was upon me. And there's still a whole lot of things to get done. And I wanted to get going on the message. But on days like that I'm reminded by Isaiah chapter 5. Sorry. Let me back up a bit. For Sundays, God gave me this portion of Scripture. Because again, you see, it's God's word that fuels that. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. And the sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I mean, this is what I want. When I come on Sunday mornings, I want a word from God that sustains the weary. And where is it going to come from? It's going to come from the sovereign Lord. And when I get up in the morning, He has awakened me most of all to listen to Him. So verses like this sustain me. As I said, Sundays are easy. What do I do on what kind of Wednesdays I had this past week? That's when Isaiah 55, chapter 2, verse 2 helps me. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Come, listen to me, hear me, that your soul may live. And I need to be reminded, that whatever work has to be done that day, has to be God's work. I have to enter into work that He's already done. I have to breathe His life into the work that is stretched out before me. And that's where Psalm 5 has become increasingly helpful. Morning prayer begins by saying, In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. And some days I take a longer time on this than others. But basically what what I'm beginning to do much more often than before is to actually rehearse every single appointment I have that day before God. It may be a premarital counseling appointment. It may be a discipling appointment. It may be a one-on-one meeting with a staff member. It may be a board meeting. It may be a staff meeting. It may be hospitality ministries in our home at the end of the day. I'm learning to acknowledge that God has already been at work before I ever get to that point. And so I just spread out the stuff of those meetings before God. And the psalmist says, I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch you show up. I'm going to watch what you're going to do that day. And you know, I remember one particular day recently where, uh, where this was very urgent in my heart. where I felt I needed. it. So I spent pretty well the whole morning in my prayer time doing that. And it was just amazing that day. God doesn't always show up that concretely. But this day he did on three different such meetings I had lined up for that day. One particular one was uh, a a pastor that I started doing some mentoring with when he was on uh, Mm. studying at at McMaster. I had been approached by their office. Well, when he finished, he was gone for a year and he would called me again and said, I'd like to continue meeting with you. And this is part of our church's calling to to do mentoring for other pastors and churches. So I was meeting with him and uh, this one day I had just taken some time to just kind of lay all that before God. We didn't have any particular agenda for that day. And it was just amazing as we sat at uh, Mr. Sub having lunch and just talking. As the conversation unfolded and developed, uh, I was just amazed. I could never have planned an agenda like that. And, and at the end of that day, as we a time as we prayed together, he said to me, "I was so glad that I came here today." I mean, all glory go to God, you know, to God. Listen. It's even more important for you to do this than for me. Do you know why? Because I get to do most of my work with friends. You love me and I love you. And when you come into my office or I meet with you, it's a safe place. Well, most of the time it's a safe place. Right? (laughs) Once in a while it can be a bit nervous, but most of the time it's safe. But you go out into a world that's very different. You go out into a dangerous world. You don't go out into a world that is friendly to grace. And Psalm 5 recognizes that. The psalmist says elsewhere, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make straight your way before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. With their tongue they speak deceit. You go out into a world that is marked by deceit, by lies, by arrogance, by covetousness, by gluttony, by sin, by betrayal. That's the world in which you do your work. How crucially important for you to morning by morning spread out those appointments before God rehearse what's going to happen, your boardrooms and your office places and your places of work in the community and collecting garbage and being a lawyer in a courtroom or if you're a um, person looking after the children in the playroom, in the living room, in the backyard, in the community park, all of these places. To be able to just spread them out before God and say, God, you are already at work before I get there today. I want to watch to see what you're going to do and how you're going to show up. This is how we learn to slowly enter from rest into work. Prayer become the means of reflecting those divine rhythms in our life. Okay, one more observation and with that the sermon at least is finished. What if you come to the end of a day and you've really blown it? This hasn't been the way. You certainly didn't begin with morning prayer. You ended up initiating a whole lot of things without checking with God or praying about anything at all that happened. You said all the wrong things. Everything was messed up. And you come back and You're just not in a good frame of mind at all. (laughs) You know what? Don't wait till tomorrow morning to start. Because when does day start? Day starts in the evening. It's time to make a fresh start now. That's where Psalm 4 comes in. And it gives you some guidelines on what to do. Psalm 4 verse 4 says, In your anger do not sin. You know that word anger there in the Hebrew language means trembling or shaking. In other words, this is even for those days when what has happened has left you shaking. Shaking in anger. Shaking in frustration. Maybe someone shook a fist in your face. Maybe they made you tremble with the words they spoke to you that day. Or it's just irritation, frustration. There's agitation, fretting. We we all know what days are like at the end of that day. So all he's saying is, don't sin. And the way you don't sin in your anger, he says, search your hearts and be silent. And I will turn the focus inward. Take all the stuff that happened outside and now begin to look inside. And, and the word, when, I, when I focus on the words be silent, basically God translated it says, don't try to fix anything. Don't fashion in your mind what you're going to say to this person. What letter you have to write. You know, all those internal conversations we have with ourselves that we play over and over and over again. Don't do it. Just be silent. And then it says, I love this, offer. Offer the sacrifices to God. What are you going to offer to God? All this stuff. Offer to Him the stuff of that messy day. Eugene Peterson, his book on the psalm says, God works with our offerings, not our perfections. Let me say that to you again. God works with our offerings, not our perfections. So give him the imperfect stuff of that day. And then it says, trust in him. Trust in him to do what? Trust in him to work with those imperfect offerings and make of them something that he wants to do. Basically, it's sleep time, right? You're getting out of the way. He said, here, this is all yours. (laughs) I blew it, but it's all yours. And what am I going to get back in return? I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O oh Lord. make me. So give up all of this stuff. You don't have to fix it. And he said, you go to sleep instead. And just tell him, tell him, I'm getting out of the way now. I can't mess it up anymore for the next 8 or 10 hours. So you can do your perfect work. And then when you get up the next morning, you trust in him and say, now it's morning prayer. Now I'm entering into the world that he has been at work. What has he been doing with all the stuff that I did yesterday? Nothing is outside the purvey of God's sovereignty to accomplish his purpose if we will yield it up to him like this. Not too long ago, I had occasion to have to do exactly this because I was feeling not anger, but I was feeling a whole lot of agitation. God brought this to mind. I was just absolutely amazing. Within the five minutes it took me to do this, I was already beginning to know peace. And by the next morning, it was like a new day, you know. So, day begins at night, not in the morning. So, here they are. Prayer is conversation with God that He initiates and we respond to. It is an entrance into blessedness in the private and the public realm of life. It is for busy, ordinary, troubled and harassed people, not for the super special saints. It is seizing from our work and entering into God's work. And then, as Stevens reminded us, if we persevere in this, somewhere, somehow, Short time or long time, it will burst out into praise, which is what the last five psalms are all about. The first five, give you these first four principles. The last five psalms are one uninterrupted, increasing crescendo of hallelujahs. It is intended, the arrangement is intended to drive home to us the fact that prayers that are shaped by the first five psalms end up by praise in the last five psalms, which is, of course, what you learned in Psalm 13 yesterday. You know, as I thought of our blessing, I was struck by the fact that uh, from the opening to the end, we we saw God's creativity in our congregation. The song that Simon sang at the very beginning for Here on Time, Michelle uh, Lorimer wrote that from Psalm 63 and Psalm 65. Uh, This day, the song we sang at the beginning was written by Alison Norris, who worshipped in our church. And then the song during the offertory was written by a young fellow, just 11 years old in our congregation. Uh, that Michelle helped him with and set to music. And then this last song that we just sang was written by Pastor Alan. I was just struck by the fact that God's Spirit is at work, His creative work is in here. And I want to bless you with that creativity, but as it applies to this whole life of prayer. Uh, I I just want to bless you with a whole new uh, life in your prayer life as God speaks to you, as He calls forth speech from you, that you may know and experience the vitality of the kind that you've never had in your life of prayer. Go in Jesus' name.